Hello, everyone, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. My name is Michael Bradley, and this is episode 75. To mark what is a bit of a milestone episode, we are going to break from our normal format to do something a little different, because this episode I've got with me a very special guest, and it's my great pleasure to welcome to the show Mr. Mark Tyler Nobleman. How are you? Uh, Mark is author of Boys of Steel, the creators of Superman, an all-ages picture book biography on Superman's creators, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. Since I've been delving deeper into the creators and the people behind the stories we look at on the show, I thought Mark would be a a great guest to have on so we could talk about Siegel and Schuster and and his book. And Mark, I want to thank you for taking time out of your evening to come on. Well, I want to thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Whenever I have folks on the show, I like to ask them first off about their history with comic books, uh, especially the character of Superman. So what is your origin story? Well, it it is Superman, actually. I, to be honest, don't remember the sequence, but I think it was that I saw Superman the movie when I was six and was so taken by it that I asked my dad if he could bring home some Superman comics. He worked, he ran a pharmacy in New Haven, Connecticut. So it was an old fashioned type pharmacy and they actually had comic books for sale. So I remember he brought me home a, an issue of Superman Family, and I can't remember the number offhand, but I do. I would know it if I saw it. And that, in my mind, is was my start, was my introduction to superheroes. But uh, what I've learned as a writer of nonfiction is that memory is very unreliable. So I can't say say it with certainty, but that's the memory that I'm going with. So, so did you read comic books then, pretty consistently growing up, or? Yeah, from then I was reading them until. Um, until middle school, at which point it wasn't that I had lost interest, but I felt that I should be losing interest. Just peer pressure, I guess. No one, I didn't. Have, no one was specifically peer pressuring me not to read comics, but that's just the impression I remember having. So I wasn't reading them in high school, but I went back to them in college, and I still read them today. I think that happens to a lot of people as they start to get, you know, into their teens. They start becoming too mature for the kids' stuff, and their interests start going elsewhere. And and then when they get a little older, they realize that it's okay to read those quote unquote immature things. And, and right. Yeah. Well, now more than ever, it's it's uh, it's it's no longer there's no longer a stigma. They've got you know big big writers, and in theory, good store better stories than ever. But that's debatable, of course. But it is it is a good time to be reading in terms of the quality that you should be getting doesn't guarantee anything but uh you said you were still reading today correct yeah yes it's you know not i i'm not a good litmus test of what's what's a what's good my friends my one of my friends always jokes that i always um i don't i don't read the best stuff but i am i am reading still today what books i mean do you mind sharing what books oh no no I I get Justice League, Aquaman, Batgirl, Suicide Squad. Those are my my regulars, and I check out other things. But I actually avoid the Superman and Batman titles because I just find them to be very they get so they get so dense, and there's just so much that you need to read to keep up with them. And I just prefer the the comics that don't um, have these really really massive long long term. Uh, storylines. Right. I, I'm kind of a one and done kind of reader. I just like a good adventure. It doesn't have to be a, a really long, um, 
long piece. DC recently went through this uh, line-wide reboot where they restarted all the, the continuities and whatnot. Did that have any effect on your reading? or It did. I, at first, was uh, quite shocked and disappointed, as particularly with them canceling and renumbering Action and Detective. Um, but that's a historian's point of view, and uh, they're obviously a business. They're just looking at how to draw in young readers, and I get that. But I felt that was almost blasphemous because these have – how many things have been running continuously since the 30s? I mean in any entertainment forum. So I just thought that was that was dubious. Um, and But like any, like I always say, it, it's all about the story. You know, They could do whatever gimmick they want, but if it's a good story, I will enjoy it. Um, I, I haven't found it to be consistently good. I mean, nothing is consistently good, I think. But I, I, you know, to me, it's it's not much different than before the reboot, or whatever you want to call it—the revision or the, you know, restarting. Because it's still the story comes first. So they had good writers and good stories before this, and they have had good ones after. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more question, and then we'll get into the. The, the, what you came here for. Um, okay. I like to ask people what their favorite Superman story is. Are there any that come to mind for you? Uh, well, you know, the first thing that always comes to mind is, is Superman the movie. But if you're talking about comics, um, that's a good question. Huh. I should be prepared for that. Um, it, it's a difficult hmm. question. I've had a, you know, a handful of guests on, and they all kind of struggle with picking out just one story that they hold up as their favorite. Yeah, and I'm having that same trouble. Um, gosh, I, I I don't think I can say that I have one favorite, but um, hmm, I might have to come back to that. I'm going to okay. disappoint people. I'm going to disappoint people, but yeah, I might have to come back to that one. All right. Um, so, what made you decide to do a book on Siegel and Schuster? I mean, how did you become interested in their story? Uh, I've actually been interested in their story since I was in high school. And when I graduated from college, I began the baby steps of researching their story for a possible screenplay. But this was in 1994, so pre-internet for me anyway. And uh, the first person I contacted that I was hoping could help me get in touch with Jerry Siegel, who was still alive at the time, of course, um, uh, he didn't exactly discourage me, but he said, it's extremely unlikely that you'll reach him. So that did kind of uh, well, not kind of that, that stopped me. Whereas it wouldn't stop me anymore. I would just keep trying until I found a way to reach somebody. But the reason that it appealed to me was it was, there were several reasons. The first is that no one had ever done it before in any format. They never had a standalone biography. I mean, they've been parts of larger comics histories, but never their own book, which just was, was not right for Superman. He's so iconic. And then the other reason was a little more crass. It was just from a marketing perspective that if there's no other book, then you're the go-to book for people that want to know that story, or at least in that you know somewhat um, stylistic, abbreviated format. So I just thought it would give me a competitive edge. And uh, and thirdly, and probably most importantly, is that that it's just a great story. I mean, some characters are just created by a guy to desk. There's no drama. You can't make a book out of it, no matter how popular the character is. But in this case, there is a riveting story that is equal parts inspirational and heartbreaking. And what writer wouldn't? be a draw, you know, drawn to a story like that. Yeah. Uh, you said you started out as a movie or, or with the idea of making it into a, a, a movie. What led to the choice of making it into a book targeted at younger readers rather than uh, an adult biography? Well, I 
I am, I've written other books and most of them are in the children's arena. So that was just what I've done, what, you know, my natural path, but I call it an all ages picture book. I think you actually said that too in your intro or something to that effect. And similar to what I was just saying, I, I don't see any strategic reason for limiting your audience. If you write a book that is a picture book, so it looks like a children's book, but you write it for all ages, then you should as a, as a writer, you should say that and you should promote it that way. And I, you know, speak a lot around the country about this book and about my career. And a lot of the times I'm speaking to an all adult audience because it is a great, just a great story. And I adjust my tone and my presentation, of course, depending on the audience. But it's a, um, it's a, it just seems to me that you can double your market. You know, you write a book that's appropriate and accessible for young people, but also tells a story that adults might not know and might be interested in. So you, you can sell it to, in, you know, in, high, in theory, twice as many people. Right. Was it an idea that was difficult to, to sell to editors or publishers? I got 22 rejections from most of the major houses, mm. um, which was, of course, discouraging. Every writer goes through it. But in this case, I was, you know, I was perplexed because I was already a published author, which doesn't guarantee anything, but it does give you some leverage. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pitching a story about a character that everybody knows that no one had ever done. So it did seem to me to be a no brainer at first. And I was, it was a rude awakening when I had a lot of people say, we like it, but we don't want it. So it wasn't exactly an easy go, but eventually I did find the the right publisher for, for the book. With Superman being known around the world, why do you think that the story behind his creation has been so overlooked? I mean, outside of the more broader comics history stories? You know, that's a great question, Michael, and no one's asked me that yet in four years. Hmm. Um, you know, I don't know. Part of it might be that uh, superheroes as as part of the mainstream culture really came to the fore, I would say, uh, not before the 1990s, really. And Jerry and Joe both died in the 90s, so maybe the, it was just, they just, you know, they missed the they missed the way, you know. They missed the chance to, you know, go to cons and be interviewed and and you know, just be a part of this new form, you know, this new even bigger fandom for comics and comic related um, projects like movies. That's not a very um, prepared answer, but that's that's one thing that comes to mind. Yeah, I mentioned that uh, or something similar along those lines a few episodes back. That really the creators of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman outside of Bob Kane gave very few interviews in their later years. Yeah. Or, or post, say, 1950. Because uh, the, the creators of Wonder Woman both died early. Uh, Bill Finger was largely out of the spotlight, or almost entirely out of the spotlight. And then with all this, the lawsuit trouble that Siegel and Schuster had, uh, it's just a, a real disappointment that they never had that opportunity since they created three of the most well-known characters that DC has or comics industry has, uh, period. Yeah, it's a huge disconnect. That And yeah, that, I, I, I agree. I mean, Siegel and Schuster, I think, are the best documented of the bunch. They right. seem to have given actually quite a quite a few interviews. And uh, also, um, just to mention another book that you, you might know about already and might be, you certainly would be interested in, it's just simply called Superman by Larry Ty, who's a, um, a journalist, an award-winning journalist. And it's he call he just it's just coming out now and he describes it as a biography of Superman as if he were a real person I think that's how he says it but it's basically a history of Superman uh, and I've just started reading it it's so far very well written and um, 
And he had access to something that I did not know existed, which was that Jerry Siegel apparently wrote a autobiography, which was never published. Wow. And, uh, and Larry had access to it. So he's, I've only read the first, you know, 20 or so pages, but he's already quoted it pretty heavily. So wow. there's some great new information from that in the book. And it makes me wonder what else is out there that might come to, you know, come out or come to the public's attention when, I don't know, it might be the lawsuits that are holding it up or I, I don't know what it might be. Yeah. Uh, you said you first conceived of, of the idea in 1994. So when did your research start? Well, uh, not then. I, I Once I got that letter, it was a letter. It wasn't a, obviously an email. It was a letter back from this nice gentleman who said, I probably would not be able to reach Jerry because he was old and weary of the whole thing, no matter how nice I was. So I stopped. Uh, it would just it, I didn't do anything for 10 years. And then in 2004, I had moved, I, by then had been in the publish. I moved into the publishing industry. And that's when I um, picked up where I left off and just, well, almost from, almost from scratch, really, to research. What were the biggest hurdles you ran into in researching their lives? Well, I didn't get access to Joanne Siegel, who, uh, Jerry's widow, well, yeah, Jerry's widow, who just passed away last year. Um, I was frustrated by that, and I felt that that was... Um, uh, well, I mean, I know they get contacted by a lot of authors, and I had not yet been, you know, Boys of Steel was my first ma- higher profile book. So I didn't have, I had published a lot of books, but I don't think I had a calling card that, you know, made me seem completely super credible, maybe. I don't know, or, or I don't know what it was, but um, I, I thought it would have been nice for posterity if they would have talked to me and, and vetted it in some way because, um, you know, I'm I'm educating people from a young age about Jerry and Joe, and I I take it very seriously. I want to be accurate, and I do believe I was accurate without talking with them. But that for me was quite a disappointment, and and I would say a big obstacle not to be able to talk to the people that knew him best that were still around. Um, the other big obstacle, of course, was was DC Comics. I, I didn't have to deal with them directly. And everything went very smoothly, both before and after the book came out. There had been no problems whatsoever, but we just had to tread carefully, of course, because I was not doing an authorized book. And we didn't, you know, we wanted to tell the the story as it really was, and we wanted to tell it without censorship or any kind of, um, any kind of, uh, you know, corporate um, involvement. So we just were very careful with the number of images that we used so that we didn't overdo it. And, you know, we all feel that we turned out a very professional and respectful product. And uh, apparently DC Comics feels the same because I haven't heard from them officially um, one way or the other. But I've heard from a couple of individuals just over the years, you know, off the record casually that they thought it was really good. So I was I'll take it. That was fine by me. Kind of along those same lines. As is the case with many figures throughout history, there's a lot of information that uh, – a lot of false information that gets passed along as truth. So when you were researching, did you find it difficult to separate legend from fact? Well, I am especially sensitive to that. Uh, I mean I think a lot of nonfiction writers are. I, I, you, I mentioned before that um, memory is unreliable. So sometimes all we have is memory. Sometimes all you have is what somebody that you interview tells you about someone who's no longer here to speak for himself. Or even if you're talking to the person who's at the center of the story, 
they might not remember their own life and no one else will know any different. I mean, if it was just you in a room thinking of Batman or Superman, I mean, and you don't document it because you don't know what, how historic this is going to be. Well, then we're, ne we're never going to really know the true story. We're going to know that I always say that nonfiction writers are trying to get as close to the truth as possible, but none of us really ever get it exactly right. It's, um, it's just the nature of the beast. So I kind of went off on a tangent, I guess. <laughs> well, did I, did I, did I, what, did I cover what you asked or should we, should no, you? No, that's fine. Um, from reading your blog and, and comments elsewhere, other interviews I've seen you do, I really appreciate that you went to such lengths to research Siegel and Schuster and make sure the things you were putting in the book were historically accurate. Um, yeah. I, I don't mean this to be disparaging towards other writers, but I think when writing for younger readers, a lot of people may not take as much care to do that. Well, I can only speak for myself. I've, I mean, I've seen mistakes and oversights in lots of books, both for young people and adults, but uh, I, I do take it very seriously. And I, there was one, um, I guess you could call it a myth or a rumor that I did contribute to overturning in, or two actually, in Boys of Steel. Um, and it was just because of my, as you're kind to of point out, just my, my determination to, to be accurate. Um, and there's nothing more frustrating than when you think you've got the story right and then it comes out and something new comes up that shows that you're actually wrong. But the best you can do is what you, with what you've got at the time, right. you know, the information you have at the time. I was both surprised and pleased that you used actual quotes from Siegel and Schuster in the book's text. Was that something you decided to do from the start, or did it come more naturally as you as you wrote? That idea came from an editor who ended up not uh, accepting the manuscript. She said that it would be more lively with with what she called dialogue, and I uh, I agree on every level. However, it was my first time writing that kind of a picture book, a narrative nonfiction, rather than more of a textbooky style approach to nonfiction, where you're just telling the story in a very straightforward way, but not you're not putting any creative stamp on it. You know, Boys of Steel is a narrative. It's I'm starting, um, I'm starting at a point, and I don't tell you what the future is. It's not you know you you, un, you learn the story along with the characters in the story. I don't foreshadow. So um, I thought it would not be. Uh, um, it's not. A, I didn't think that you could do that in nonfiction to include quotations from. Uh, that weren't said at the time in a book. So, for example, all the quotations in Boys of Steel come from interviews with Jerry and Joe. They said those things, but they didn't say them at the time that I have them in the story. Uh, in other words, you know, for example, there's a fun line near the beginning where Jerry's saying, um, I, I don't have the book in front of me, but he's talking about girls, how girls didn't notice him and didn't, didn't think about him and didn't even you know, want him to exist. Right. And he said that as a grown man, but I included it in the book as I made it a thought of his as a young man. So that is right, an example of where, you know, not, you know, it's a nonfiction book, but that's not literally true. What I did, that's, uh, you are allowed to do that, but it's not exactly the truth as it happened. So it was great that I was encouraged to add the dialogue. I was resistant at first, but then I, you know, I agreed when I saw how great it was that way and I'm but just to make sure that it was as we covered ourselves I have a line on the copyright page explaining that this dialogue comes from interviews so that you if you don't do that you might get a, a review or more than one review that says 
you know, this is supposedly nonfiction, but where did all, where did all this dialogue come from? Right. And if they don't, if you don't quote, if you don't cite it, they, they might think you made it up and there goes your credibility as for that book anyway. Hmm. What did you learn <laughs> in your research that was most surprising? Well, uh, the two myths that I found out the real story on were probably the two things that were the most surprising. The bigger one was Michael Siegel's death, Jerry's father's death. Um, before my book, the only book that had discussed it was Men of Tomorrow by Jerry Jones. And it was a big deal when that book came out that the book included finally the, the, the law, the, 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 this, the, um, the big reveal of what actually happened to Jerry's dad, whom he never mentioned in interviews. And what uh, Gerard Jones had found is that Jerry Siegel's father was murdered during a robbery of his clothing store. And that was a big, I don't know if you remember, it was 2004, I want to say, and that was a, you know, a story on Newsarama and some of the big comic sites. And, and I found out that he did die during a robbery of the clothing store, but not by murder. He had a heart attack. And um, so that was a big, you know, big Superman myth that was overturned. And that, that myth was interesting enough that USA Today made it a cover story in their life section, which was a huge honor for me and had never happened before. So that was obviously something that um, had larger resonance than just, you know, the Superman community's um, knowledge of Jerry. Right. So. I remember, I remember that article in USA Today. I remember seeing that. Um, you said you weren't able to speak to either Jerry or Joe or Joanne before their deaths. Did you speak to any contemporaries of Siegel and Schuster for their memories or recollections? Uh, you know, after I tried to reach Joanne and and was um, was uh, discouraged, I didn't try to talk to anybody else because I felt that for the version, the way that I was telling the story, I had enough material from their interviews. Now, the, I, I've got a book coming out any day now, really. Well, this month actually on Bill Finger, on the, you know this, the un, uncredited co-creator of Batman. Mm-hmm. And that was a completely different research process. I talked to more than 200 people personally, many of whom did not – well, I mean he, he would be an old man to the very old man. So uh, some of them were his contemporaries but not too many. Uh, and that was a totally different situation because he was so undocumented that I really did need to do that to get the story. But with Siegel and Schuster, the version that I'm telling, and by that I mean a what I call a stylized version. It's, it's a picture book, so I don't – it's not a 500-page in-depth biography. So for that version of it, I wanted to have accurate information. I wanted to have new information if possible. But I really had a good sense of their character from, um, from interviews they'd already given. And that's really what you need to talk to people for is just to get a sense of their character that doesn't come across necessarily in a, in a sort of a, you know, a general biography. But you want to get at their core. And that I didn't really need to do for Boys of Steel. I had that from the material that they'd already um, produced. Okay. That's, that's an interesting insight. I hadn't really ever thought of it that way before. Well, yeah. if I was doing it again, I might – I think now that I've done the Bill Finger research, I think I would be talking to people. Um, but I, I just didn't at the time think that uh, I needed to. In researching the book, did you go back and read or reread any of, the, uh, any of their comic stories, either Superman or the other stuff they did? I, I read some of the very first. Okay. Um, but because it wasn't a – comprehensive biography I didn't need to even comment on us any specific story in that format so I didn't have to do too much of that I mean I wanted to get a sense for it but um, 
I didn't have to get too and too. I didn't have to read, you know, hundreds. Like I think someone like a Larry Ty, who's writing a really long book about them, would have to do. And how did you get connected with Ross McDonald, the illustrator of the book? Well, in the publishing industry, typically the the editor and the publisher will assign you or will will choose an artist, and the author might have no say at all. They might ask you what you think, and even if you don't like the choice, they still might go with him or her. So uh, it just depends on your contract and your, you know, your I guess your your status. Um, but in this case, they were really great. They I had a list of people that I would love to work with. They had a list. We compared lists. Uh, you know, some people might not have been available or interested or affordable, but Ross was someone that we both agreed on, and and he was interested in the material. So it was really very smooth and very uh, great for the book. Cool. I appreciated that the art was in some ways kind of evocative of Schuster's early work, but it had a kind of a twist of a vintage art deco that gave it its own style where it didn't really feel like he was intentionally emulating Schuster, but kind of still brought that feeling. How big of a factor was that style in selecting him for the artwork? I think it was a big factor. And what I always make sure to point out is that that's his, that is his style. Mm-hmm. He didn't alter it for the book. So I've had I've heard people that say he's copying Schuster, but he's that's his style. He is very Art Deco, and you look at his other work on his site in print, and that's how he draws. And he obviously was clearly influenced by that era. So that's again, you know, one of the a big reason why he was a great fit for the book. And how much collaboration did you two have? I mean, did you? line out the illustrations as you were writing the book or did you have the manuscript and then he did the art to best illustrate it as he saw fit? Well, it's an interesting question when it comes to picture books because when I'm done with it, it's just a manuscript. It's words on a page with no pagination and you don't have, I mean, I do lay it out in my mind as I'm sure most of us do, but what, what you send an editor usually is just this script. It's just words on a, you know, on a word document. So, I had I had visions for illustration, but it might not end up paginating the way that I am imagining it. So, and I don't have you know that's that involves the editor, or the designer. So you might, in other words, have two different illustrations for a piece of text that ends up being on one page. So you can't have two illustrations; you have to choose which one you want to use. So I did give them my uh, the layout that I was imagining. And a lot of it is in the book. And then, of course, Ross put his own stamp on it and had some suggestions and ways to do things that I uh, that I loved. So it was it is a true collaboration, although one thing that a lot of people don't know is that, at least in my experience and most people I've talked to, picture book authors and artists don't collaborate directly. Well, directly, if you're not already an existing team. Hmm. So I didn't talk with him on the phone. We didn't even email Everything went through the editor. If I wanted to make a suggestion, I would email my editor. She would pass it on to Ross. We didn't talk or email or meet until after the book was out. Wow. That seems like a a very – it seems like it would be a very difficult way to to write and to to get the book together when you're not talking to the artist. Uh, Yeah. Well, I'm used to it. I think most of us are. And, and certainly you just need to have a good editor, a responsive editor who does pass your comments on and that's what I had. So – it's they do it just as a as a uh, I mean as it, it it's mediation they just want to what if the art artists and the author I mean artists and authors and people in the arts as you know can be very passionate and very sometimes very um, close minded to their you know all they see is their own work so they do that just to keep it moving along so the, if there is any friction it doesn't sabotage the project. 
one thing that I was really impressed with on the art is small details. Um, there's a picture kind of early in the book of Joe Schuster drawing, and he's drawing with his left hand because he yeah. was left-handed. And later we see some pulp magazine covers that I recognized as actual covers from pulp magazines. Are those things you specified, or did Ross McDonald do his own research for that kind of well, thing? For those two particular things, I did specify them. Okay. Ross did his own research as well. Um, just for the to have things look period, but I um, kind of late in the process, I think I I realized that I needed to find out whether Joe was right or left-handed, and that's a perfect example of something that you know obviously ninety nine point nine percent of the population doesn't know or care whether he was right or left-handed, but I want to be able to say I was accurate. Right. So we found that out and put it in the book, and actually I'm happy to say that you're not the first to ask about that or notice that. So there are a lot of um, eagle-eyed people out there that do think about that and the pulp covers i chose specifically because they had come up in the research is particularly the one that is on the top of there was three that are shown and the one that's on the top of the pile was the what's in science fiction known as the flying man cover the famous uh, first time that most people at that point would have seen a picture of a human flying on his you know just his body, not in a, not in a vehicle. So that made a bit, you know, and I think Jerry's, I think that he singled that out in interviews. Uh, It's been years since I've done the research, but I'm pretty sure that that was why I included it because he specified that that had an influence on him. You didn't use the name Superman in the story itself, just in the afterward. Right. Why, Why was that? Did you did you pick up on that or did you see that somewhere? No, I picked up on it when I was reading through it. The very first time oh. I was reading through it, actually, yeah, because I kept waiting for the name Superman to appear, and then we, uh-huh. we finally saw him uh, towards the end of the book. And but the name never showed up until I got to the afterwards. So I was right. Yeah. Well, that uh, I'm that's great that you noticed that. It's really fun to talk to kids and after they've read the book and ask them how many times do you think the word Superman appeared in that book, and almost always they think many times, and that's the beauty of picture books. They think they heard it. Because they've seen Superman, and those, you know, if you can show something in a picture book, it's it's great to show it and not say it as well. Just let the images do do the you know convey the meaning. So I didn't sit down before I, before I wrote the book and and say I'm going to write a book about Superman and not use the word. But I got to a certain point toward the end where I realized I hadn't used it yet, and I thought it would be a fun experiment to see if I could actually finish the book without the word. And since given the shorter format, it it is easier. Um, but at one point, my editor got frustrated because there was some line toward the end that she said, you know, Mark, why don't we just do away with this? I mean, basically what she was saying was with, with your, you know, your meaningless desire to not use the word Superman and just try to tell it straightforward. And I managed to convince her that it would be fun and, and not would not make the book awkward or uh, make it seem clumsily done at the end. And I think it, it worked. I mean, I think it works. I think it's smooth. And I think a lot of people don't notice. So that, that also says that it's... Um, it's smooth and it works. So, and I, I just noticed as you were talking, I was glancing through the art, the uh, the image where they had uh, where they had drawn the Superman, the one the story that eventually got destroyed. You, we see Jerry pulling the cover out of the fire, and the way the shots framed, his arm is covering the title where it says the Superman. Yes, so I thought that that's really clever. You're good the, because that that was another issue. The original sketch showed the full cover and my editor said that she wanted to take out that cover because the, the the design of the word superman in that art is similar to the version that they have trademarked today so she said let's just take it out and not risk it and i said oh but 
if it's just the word that's trademarked, can't we have Ross redraw it and have Jerry's arm strategically block just the word so that we can keep the art, which is not trademarked? And fan, true fans that have seen it will, 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 will get another sense that I've done my research and I've done my homework and they're in good hands. So she agreed to that and Ross did it and it was, that's, how it, that's how it got in the book. Um, we may have already covered this next question. I, I was curious if there were any limits or restrictions on the use or name and use of the name or image of Superman. And if those came from DC and Warner Brothers or your publisher, but it kind of sounds like you didn't have many restrictions by that. Well, we 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 were we were working according to something called fair use, which is a legal term um, allowing uh, people like us, artists, creators, to use a limited quantity of licensed characters in their work without paying and without risk. But there's no firm definition of fair use. It's not like they say it's 20% of the work or there's no formula. So you have to just use your best judgment. In this case, we had a – I think it was a 40-page book. And I think we showed Superman three times. It might have been even – I know there's three, two color pictures of him and there might be one sketch. So I might be missing one. Um, but Yeah, there's the sketch. And then there's the cover of Action Number Action Comics Number One. Um, right. The next page, it looks like uh, they're in a movie theater watching maybe the Fleischer cartoons or whatever, and you can right. see a silhouette. And then the final page is Superman and all right. the glory. So the so the movie page doesn't count because it's okay. in silhouette, so that could be anybody. Um, and the cover of Action Comics, I, I don't know if that would. I, I mean, they're not. They're not. There's not. Like I said, there's no formula, so I don't know if that would technically count or not. But so in other words, you've got a 40-page book and you see Superman only a fraction, you know, only a very, very few times. So that obviously was okay because we didn't hear from them and there was no problem. And we had the same, we had the same uh, approach with the Batman book. Um, so if we had gone to them, I don't know what they would have said. But you can write a book about anything you want. You just have to be careful when you use other uh, you know, images that you don't own, even if you're creating them anew. Uh, this isn't so much a question. I just want to kind of compliment you on it. There was a passage in the book, and this is when it's talking about Siegel and Schuster coming up with the idea of Superman. And you wrote, uh, the other heroes Jerry and Joe read about were regular humans in strange places. This hero would be a stranger in a regular place. And when I was reading that the other day, kind of just to refresh my memory on it before the interview here, it really hit me that that is one of the major reasons why I think Superman took off like he did. I mean, there's clear inspirations from things like Doc Savage and, and Flash Gordon and Gladiator, but Siegel kind of turned that on its ear and had this creature of phenomenal power coming to Earth and taking on situations that were very, very real to people at the time, like warmongers and racketeers and corrupt governments. And that's especially driven home right after where it talks about how he wouldn't be a, a giant slimy alien with 200 eyes. I mean, in a majority of the science fiction to that point, whenever aliens came to Earth, they were invaders. Right. So I was just very impressed that you were able to distill that down so succinctly because I think it is an idea that really gets lost on a lot of modern readers who do have 75 more years of science fiction and aliens in addition to Superman. Yes, and uh, well, thank you for the compliment and for the others before, by the way. Um, it took a while for me to get that to a point that I was happy with because that's, that is important when you're writing a book about a character 
that you can be able to define what was different about the character. And a lot of the times that's what contributes to his success. Um, although everyone wants to copy a trend, what really usually takes off are the things that are risky and, and new. Right. So, And one thing that's become especially clear to me going through the, all the stories is that at least in the first two years that I've dissected on the show, Siegel didn't really write Superman as science fiction in the context of him fighting aliens or giant robots. There are some sci-fi elements in there. You know, you've got Luthor and the ultra-humanite who are mad scientists, but even their plans largely revolve around taxicab rackets or jewel thefts. Mm-hmm. Um, Luthor's first story involved him trying to get two countries to go to war with one another. So the science fiction side of Superman really ended with his origin, which yeah. really helped to ground the character in the real world that the readers were living in at the, living in at the time. Yeah, that's, I, I, that's a good observation. I agree. Now, you've been traveling to schools and talking to other groups about the book, right? Yes. What can you tell us about that? Extremely rewarding. Um, not every writer likes to speak. Some writers become writers in part because they like to withdraw and be reclusive. Uh, But I'm not one of them. Um, And it's very helpful for me both just as a person and as a writer to to speak to audiences and try to tell the story in a way that's appropriate for an audience, you know, which might be different than the way you tell it in the book. And it's just very rewarding for me just on a personal level um, when people like what I do, like we all feel typically, you know, that people, you, everybody likes your work to be appreciated. I would say not everybody, but I, most artists I know. And, um, what's really rewarding is that it's a lot of times it's young people, not always. I've spoken to plenty of all adult audiences, at, you know, libraries, museums. I've even spoken at a couple of business lunches, a lot of conferences, but with the kids, it's really, really for me. So, heartening when I go to a school and oftentimes when an author is, is when they're bringing in an author, they do prep work. The kids all read your books and they talk about it and they, they prepare for your visit. So to walk into a school where kids are talking about Jerry and Joe as if they would talk about Justin Bieber or I don't even know, some contemporary person that they like, it's really, I mean, that's when I feel like I, I've done something worthwhile. You know, that these kids now are going to grow up knowing who created Superman by name, just as if they know who sings, you know, that that's a Lady Gaga song or I don't even know. So that is is for me is really um, humbling and heartening and, and makes it so worthwhile. Yeah. Well, I think talking to kids about the story is great and adults, too. I doubt there are many people in this day and age that haven't heard of Superman but most people don't know the story of his creation. And it's just such a great story about not giving up. Yes, um, unfortunately, and that's my focus. That's it's funny that you pick, you're, Michael. You're really good. You picked up on a bunch of things that I that I do. Um, that is the that is the focus of my talks at at schools is the the necessity of persistence. And I've been doing that long before Boys of Steel. So well, not long before, but as long as I've been speaking, I've been that's been my message. So Boys of Steel ties in perfectly. Unfortunately, all the things that went down after the character were sold are, are far less encouraging. How do you deal with that in your talks, or do you just kind of gloss over that? Well, uh, well, I mean, you know, I, I'm very direct about it. Luckily, we're, t- we're talking about um, uh, unpleasant things, but not inappropriate things. It's right. like, you know, not murder and rape and well, the worst yeah. of human nature. But 
it, 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 so it's not going to distress any any kids likely, but I do have to find a way to tell them in a way that they will understand. And you notice that some of the more complicated aspects of it I put in the author's note, which some kids probably don't read, mm-hmm. definitely don't read. But I just tell it like it was, that not everybody um, is is um, honest about, is, is honest or is fair. And these were guys that did a very great thing and they made a decision about um, what to do with it that some people think was a bad decision and some people think that they that it wasn't their fault. So it's, it makes for a very provocative talk. Was it their fault that that Superman, that they didn't make a, a lot of money on Superman over the years or was it really people taking advantage of them? So it can, depending on the age, it can be a really great conversation. How do most of these visits come about? Are you uh, pitching, uh, pitching presentation ideas or do like schools and other groups contact you and say, hey, come talk to us? Both. I, I, I'm very active about pitching, um, but I've been doing it a while. So I also there's there is some word of mouth, and I do get contacted as well. And uh, and and both of those they both happen fairly regularly. Hmm. Um, shifting gears a little bit, about a year ago, you posted a series of interviews on your website with various people that were involved in uh, entertainment throughout the '70s and '80s. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it came about? Sure. Uh, yeah, that was my Super 70s and 80s blog series, which ended up being massive, much bigger than I could have possibly uh, predicted. Uh, it was. It ended up being 100 people, even 100. Um, and it, it, it took up – it was on my blog. I posted not every single day, but most days between mid-July and early October – so it was something like it says at the very it says in the first post it was I think it was seventy one posts, um, each a separate interview and it came about because I Boys of Steel came out in two thousand eight and I knew that my Bill Finger book would be coming out in two thousand twelve and I believe that if you're going to blog you should give people original content that's not just about you and it should relate to your work but try to find something that contributes to the to the um, to the record. So I thought it would be a fun bridge between my Superman and Batman books to put some other original content on my blog, which was research-driven and related to superheroes. And I'm a big nostalgia freak, and I'm a child of the <laughs> '70s and '80s. So I and I'm I'm a, I'm a lover of debunking or solving mysteries. So all those things combined by me looking for people that I had never seen interviewed before, and I was very selective. I had people write me afterwards saying, oh, could you, you know, why don't you include the Superboy TV series? And I said, well, that could be great. But first of all, I don't have a personal, that wasn't a formative series for me. Right. So, and I also think that a lot of those people are, are, have been interviewed and have been covered online. But someone like Bo Rucker, who had a, had a single line in Superman the movie, he was the pimp. <laughs> but an iconic line, lots of, you know, you say that line and people know what you're, if you're, you know, people yeah. like you and me, actually, they know what you're talking about. Well, he was a complete mystery. Nothing about him online, so it took a little while, but I found him, and he, he took some convincing, but he's a true class act, like I say in the interview intro, and um, now he's interviewed and he's online, so when people Google him, now more than just his name on IMDb sh- turns up. So it, was, it, it ended up being you know really time-consuming, but really worth it because it brought a lot of new re- I think a lot of new readers to me and my work, and I do feel good about contributing to posterity, and some of those people are now getting invited to speak at, not speak, but to appear at conventions, which is what I was hoping that they could 
right. maybe make a little you know supplementary income from this and because some of them didn't even know that people like them go to comic conventions and, hmm. and sign autographs so um, that's that's how that's how that came about and with a hundred interviews how long was that in the works and how long did it take you to compile all of those I started in January 2010 and um, looking back at and I, and I began um, going through and formatting it and making it a feature in uh, June of 2011. But most of the interviews had been completed by about January 2011. So I, it was a year, but not a, I mean, like with all of, whatever, all of our lives, everything is multitasking. I wasn't right. devoting full days to this. It was just in between and around. And I did as much as possible by email. I, 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 even though actually doing it by phone sometimes yields a better interview, uh, because it's more spontaneous, but uh, it just just to be realistic about my time, I you know I was glad when some of them were happy to respond by email, answer questions by email. Hmm. How did you come up with the list of people you wanted to get a hold of? I mean, did it grow as it went on? Were there people you tried to contact that you couldn't find? Or yes, um, and yes, I, it did grow. It started with I mean, it really just started with um, Aaron Smolinski, who was the baby in Superman movie. Um, I interviewed him first and I just was going to do it. I think I was just going to do it as a one-off thing. But then I thought, well, why don't I see who else hasn't been interviewed from Superman, the movie? And that's where I found Bo and Jeff East, who actually has been interviewed. He was, um, teenage Superman in the movie, teenage Clark. Um, and, but then, you know, for me, not just, I should have said before, one of my other formative, um, influences was the super friends. And most of those guys have never been interviewed. So I just just dug into that like a you know like a maroon you know person that was just being re reacclimated to society and food for the first time. Just seeing if I could find every surviving super friend voice actor. And I found most of them. Uh, and everybody that I found was willing to do it, although some were you know more revealing than others. So uh, that was a, a big part of it and then uh let's see and then scooby-doo is in there and now he's of course not a superhero <laughs> but I, I just i i i changed it from superheroes to pop culture to include scooby-doo because he was my other super friends and scooby-doo were my two my two favorites when That's i was true. a kid yeah. so uh, it was not quite a cohesive you know it's pop culture but not quite and then um the other one that was a big uh catalyst was th- this um two-part NBC live-action series, I guess you could call it, called Legends of the Superheroes, which is a cult classic yeah. and completely campy, as you might know. And most of those people were, you know, that's all they did. They, they didn't even have other credits to their name. So it was really tough to find those people. But there's so much mention of this in discussion boards and forums online and, you know, so much, you know, it is a cult classic. So I just thought that would be a really fun one to include, and it, and, and it has been. People yeah. responded very nicely to it. You tracked down a lot of the people from the SeaWorld uh, DC Comics uh, water skiing show. Yes, and that actually – that one I also – I'm glad you mentioned that. That I also have to single out because that became a different – almost a different project because everybody else I was interviewing, they were performers. And the, they were um, – well, they were performers who were filmed or recorded. Now, the SeaWorld people – they don't. They didn't consider themselves like that. They just. They were athletes, and they didn't care what they were told to dress up as. They just. That's their job. 
I mean, they weren't superhero people. And for that matter, neither were most of the voice actors. But the SeaWorld people were the least connected to the superheroes. But they were, it was one, of, it was probably my favorite um, series, sub series of the whole thing because. I felt like we were creating an oral history of this show that so many people fondly remember or didn't remember because they didn't see it, but they just know that it existed. They had this. Some people even emailed me or posted comments saying, you know, I thought this was just something I made up in my mind. But what they probably are remembering is that they saw one ad in 1978 of super water skiing superheroes and then that stuck with them and they never really knew what it was. And now they find out that, yeah, this was actually a real show that was produced for three years. And it was a really sweet thing because we've all been through um, puberty. We've all been through either summer camp or some teenage summer experience. And here I was just, you know, allowing these people to all relive theirs. And it was such a sweet, such an honor for me. And, I, you know, a lot of them were so kind and appreciative about it. And I'm actually even kind of an honor, even though I, my water skiing um, career was very, very, very short lived. I think I fell the first time I tried and didn't try again. But they've they've invited me. They're having a reunion now because of this. Wow. In October in Florida, and they've invited me to go as an you know as a honorary. Well, they didn't say it like this, but they said you have to be there because you're the one who brought this about. So I hope I can make it. Well, congratulations and, and thank you for for bringing back this nostalgic piece of of, of history. It, I mean, it, it's not only great for the people involved, but for for fans like me who do like to know as much as possible about the various ways the 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 superheroes have been translated into other form mediums and forms. Yeah. And you know then I, I think what I what I was grasping at before that I didn't get out is that I think what's really special about the SeaWorld series is that some of the other series you're not going to I wouldn't recommend it to people that don't like superheroes. But the SeaWorld series I would recommend as reading for anybody because you, it, they really through their interviews they it is a narrative. They're creating this story about these young people who are, of course, hormones raging, and they're doing a job that is one of huge audiences, and it's in a, like one of the, a dream job for a teenager if you can ski to be in working in, a, in an amusement park. I mean, it, it just created a very sweet story with some, you know, with some sad parts and with some really cool parts and some some drama and some injuries, and it really that kind of stands alone as for me as entertainment as something that you can read and doesn't matter whether it was superheroes or or whatever it's that's you know that could be secondary to you if you want to just read a great story about what it was like to work at SeaWorld in the 70s have you given any thought to compiling all those interviews into a book to to document the history of it or well i have you know a couple people suggested that and i followed i took i contacted leads that they gave me but for a couple reasons i don't really think it's worth much time because first of all I've, i've already put it all online for free Right. And I'm not going to take it down. So, and the other reason is that um, it is quite. It, it, I mean, you know, it's not. Uh, it, it's not. Co- I don't know. There's gaps, I guess you could say. I mean, some people might say if you're going to do a, a, a comprehensive history of of uh, film superheroes from the '70s, well, you know, you don't have Wonder Woman, you don't have the Hulk. So, you know, what? It, it, it's just my whim what I include. So, I to do it as a book would take a little bit more. Of a of a formal approach, and I I'm not interested in some of those other properties as as a writer as a researcher. So that would be an impediment. And also, I I just don't know that there'd be a big, even if I didn't have it online, I don't know if there'd be a big enough market for that. Um, right. I don't know. There's a book called The Age of TV Heroes. Have you seen that or heard of that? I have heard of it. I have not actually seen a physical copy though. Yeah, it's it 
it, it's something like what I was just describing. I mean, they, they cover, um, I don't remember if they go back to the George Reeves Superman, but they've got the, the Batman, the sixties Batman, and they've got Wonder Woman and Hulk and they have the legends of the superheroes and they have Superboy and they have Smallville. So they're covering superheroes on primetime basically. So that kind of does exist. That was put out by two Morrows and it, yeah, I just looked it up on the, on the internet, on the Google here and it does cover, it says from the adventures of Superman to Smallville. Okay. So. And they, and you know, they actually, that book came out while I was doing my interviews and they had a, and I was a little bummed because they did have a Legends of the Superheroes section, but they didn't get any of the people that I got. They got nobody, oh, actually. Wow. I got I was the one who found the performers. So and also um, they had a SeaWorld segment. And that also kind of bummed me out. But then I realized that, you know, what I'm doing is just so beyond well, I should shouldn't say beyond, but it it was a different approach. Theirs was, right. was just an article and mine was a oral history told by the people that were there. Hmm. They interviewed a couple, but I had forty and none of the people that I interviewed were the, the two I think that they had used. So um, they are. They do come across as different, but I was just. I was. I was a little bit disappointed that I wasn't the first to document SeaWorld. But I think uh, you know because I'm mine's a blog post. So many more people, frankly, are seeing it than that book. Which you know, you're a fan. You haven't seen it, and it's not. Uh, I don't think a widely seen book. Uh, but you do have another book coming up, like you said, and later this month it's going to be of major interest to comic book fans. What can you tell us about that? It's called Build a Boy Wonder, the secret co-creator of Batman, mm-hmm. and it is the first ever book on Bill Finger. He's been parts of other books about Batman, but he's never had his standalone biography yet, and he, more than a lot of people, really deserves one. He died in 1974 before he was properly documented, and he gave very few interviews, and actually two of them that he gave were lost, and I found them over the course of my research, wow. which was great. And so did someone else, by the way. But um, but my my book's coming out. So uh, um, and it's uh, I've I, I'm extremely excited about it. It's a natural follow up and companion to Boys of Steel. Um, they're both sad, and they're you know both um, you know about our I'd say our two most iconic superheroes. So I, I'm just I'm already deep in the pre promotion and um, just trying to get people to know about it and. And just you know, spread the word about Bill Finger. I'm definitely looking forward to it. I mean, as much as I loved your your Boys of Steel book, I think this one's going to be, if not better, at least as good. Um, and who's the artist on that? That's Ty Templeton. So we got an actual comics artist for that one, and, and one that's going to be familiar to Batman fans because he did familiar a lot of Batman, Batman work. Yeah. And also, uh, on a on a on a from a marketing perspective. I mean, not only is he a great artist and a great guy to work with, but he promotes, he tweets, and he's blogs, and he's, you know, he helps get the word out, which is so critical these days. And I, and I didn't ask him to do that. That's just the way he is with his own work. So it's going to be a huge help for the book. Ross was a great guy, not a promoter, though, and he'd be the first to say that. <laughs> um, compared to Boys of Steel, will it cover, will the Bill Finger book cover a similar time period in Finger's life? Basically, up to Batman, up to Batman? When it, uh, no, actually. Well, the uh, no, actually, um, uh, Build a Boy Wonder is more is more comprehensive. Okay. Um, as you astutely noted, again, fourth time tonight, Boys of Steel <laughs> is is a um, what it's technically called a storyography. It's not. I mean, nobody knows this term, so I don't. It's, you know, but it's just fun to say. Uh, a biography typically would include birth to death, okay. and I don't start with their births and end with their deaths. Although I do address both in the afterward. So Bill Finger's book, 
doesn't start with his birth. In fact, it starts just before the creation of Batman, but it does go through his death. Oh, wow. So, but it, but I, but I, it's focusing on Batman. I mean, Bill did other things, mm-hmm. and I didn't, I didn't talk about them in the book. I will talk about them on my blog and as I speak. But the book is really about Bill and Batman specifically. Okay. Um, now, what is interesting is that the way that Boys of Steel was structured. It ends with the, as you noted, it ends with the creation of Superman, which is how I was able to write a whole book about Superman without using his name. He only is introduced in the last couple of pages. But with Bill the Boy Wonder, Batman's created, you know, within the first couple of pages. So I didn't pull that same trick. And it does, um, there's just more Batman stuff in it than there is Superman stuff in Boys of Steel, just because of the the structure. Great. Even if, listeners aren't Batman fans, I think they should definitely check it out. I mean, Finger wrote quite a number of Superman stories yeah. uh, beginning in 1943, including the very first extended telling of Superman's origin in the comic books. Um, and he also worked on the Superman newspaper strip in the early 60s. So, uh, And he wrote the first Lana Lang story, and I believe right. the first Lori Lamaris story. That sounds right. Don't hold me to that, but I think it's right. I think it's right. I think it is right. I I'm, re- I'm remembering the Wayne Boring artwork on that Lori Lamar story, but I don't remember exactly if Bill Finger wrote it, but it, it sounds right. Yeah. Um, I know you do a lot of, of, of freelance writing and cartooning. Do you have any other projects in the works that you can tell us about? Uh, I do. Nothing comics related right now. I'm My next nonfiction picture book is a World War II story, and I'm desperately um, eager to get it out there, but it's been a, it's been tough. It's not a story that most people know, so... A lot of times publishers and editors are wary of stories that don't have a built-in, I mean, fan base is not the right word, but audience, I guess you could say. So, you know, they like books that are that are on the big textbook names, you know, the Rosa Parks and the Babe Ruth and uh, the Christopher Columbus and those people, which all have many, many books on them, of course. And then I like to write about people and stories that haven't been well covered. So it's a World War II story about a Japanese pilot who did something no one had ever done and has not done since, which is successfully... Um, infiltrate U.S. mainland airspace, and he dropped two bombs in Oregon during the war. Two, two, well, he dropped four bombs, but two different times. In 1942, he dropped them in the forests of Oregon. Didn't kill anybody, which is why he's not widely known, because unfortunately the stories we tell about war are the stories where people die. Um, but it's a great story. I've actually blogged about it. If you Google, uh, in quotation marks, 30 minutes over Oregon, you will see a couple of my blog posts, because I I went public with this. I, I did something unconventional and unorthodox. And I, after I pitched it to a bunch of editors and gotten great feedback but no, no takers, I essentially pitched it on my blog so that everybody could see it, um, which you know a lot of ours would never do because you don't want to risk that someone else picks up that idea and runs with it. And that's court, of course, happened, but I doubt it. So I just felt so strongly about this story that I wanted out there that I just wanted to see what kind of response I would get online. And it's been overwhelming and and all positive and uh everyone's very supportive of this book getting out there so i'm hoping i mean it's been a while and i haven't still gotten had an editor uh, make an offer but i do hope that that will contribute to someone eventually saying this is worthwhile it sounds sounds very interesting i'm not as interested in the world war ii history as i am you know comic books and superheroes right, but, right. but it, it does sound like something i would at least pick up and read if it was out there um, well, yeah well it, it is a great story well, Mark, I want to thank you for coming on and, and taking time out of your day to talk. This has been this has been a whole lot of fun, and I, I really do appreciate it. 
I love Boys of Steel, and I'm really looking forward to Bill the Boy Wonder, and I hope people out there listening will pick up both, not just for their own enjoyment, but also to pass on to those younger readers as, a, as another avenue for introducing them to Superman and Batman and history. You know, um, yeah. Why don't you let the folks know where they can find your website and anything else you want to mention? Sure. Uh, my blog is Noble Mania, so you can just Google Noble Mania and my blog will come right up. And I, I tell a lot of the behind-the-scenes stories of both books and other things that I'm doing on the blog. And um, I'm documenting, for example, just today I went and personally delivered a copy of the Batman book to Carmine Infantino, who was a great help to me in the research. And it was an honor to be able to give it to him in person. Um, I mean, he's quite old, so I wouldn't I, – I could have mailed it, of course, but I wanted to – hand deliver it and express my gratitude again for his help. Um, so that's the kind of thing that you will see on my blog. I'm going to post the pictures from that today, I think, um, tonight or tomorrow. And um, But books are available anywhere books are sold, although these days with bookstores being what they are, you know, you might have an easier time just ordering it online or ordering it through your bookstore. But the Batman book will be in stores, and they're both, and it's actually, even though the release date is technically July 1st, um, I'm told that Am- I, I know that Amazon is shipping them already. So if you were to order it already, you would get it now. Um, but although I do have to always mention that I believe in independent bookstores as well. So please, please support and patronize them as well. Yes. Um, definitely be sure to check out Mark's blog. I mean, dig through the archives there and you'll get all sorts of behind the scenes information and photos about Siegel and Schuster and Boys of Steel, uh, not to mention the super seventies and eighties project and, and, uh, build a boy wonder. It's just, it's a treasure trove of, of facts and information and neat stuff to look at. But that's it for this episode, folks. I want to thank you all for listening. Be sure to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for everything you need to know about the show. You'll find the RSS feed and the link, the iTunes link, as well as links to the show's Facebook and Twitter feeds. Uh, please don't forget the Superman homepage and the Superman Podcast Network. Updates are posted at both sites whenever there's a new episode, and You'll find all sorts of other Superman-related content. As always, Superman was created by the Boys of Steel themselves, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and is copyright DC Comics. Mark, thank you again. Thank you very much, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Uh, To everyone else, thanks for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I'll talk to you all later. Goodbye. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman.
the Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. I've got a few things to say about Superman, the Superman Vidcast, the world's best podcast, and Radio Kale from SupermanHomepage.com, as well as the audio dramas Superman, Last Son of Krypton, and Supergirl, Last Daughter of Krypton from Pendant Audio Productions. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. <laughs>